Hey, Sminty listeners, Bridget here. Your favorite Pisces has a birthday coming up, and guess what? Y'all are all invited. I'm hosting a birthday party in Washington, D.C. on Sunday, March 11th to benefit Thrive D.C., an organization that fights homelessness. Want to party with me? All you need to do is bring a box of heavy flow or overnight maxi pads or tampons to donate to a D.C. woman experiencing homelessness. Look out for more deets on the Sminty Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram channels, and I hope to see y'all there. Hey, this is Bridget, and you're listening to Stuff Mom Ever Told You. And yes, it does sound a little bit strange to be saying that alone. First, a little housekeeping. I want to thank all you Smithy listeners for sticking with us during this transition. Emily will be missed so much. In the spirit of radical transparency, I want to let y'all all know that we're working on putting together something great, and I hope you'll all love it going forward. In the meantime, we're doing some experimenting here at Sminty. You'll be hearing from some new voices, some old voices, and a mix of everything in between. So please let us know what you think, what you like, what you don't like, and we'll take it from there. And I'm so glad that y'all are taking this journey with us. Speaking of voices, if mine sounds a little bit nervous right now, that's because I'm about to be joined in studio by none other than Miss Yardley Smith, who you might know a little better as Lisa Simpson. That's right, y'all. We've got Lisa S. in the studio. In our series, Fictional Feminists, Em and I unpacked some of our favorite fictional feminist characters on the small and big screens. And y'all really couldn't get enough of talking about Lisa Simpson. If you didn't listen to that episode, here's a little taste of how it went down. Right, Growing up, Lisa was this figure who was allowed to be political and activist-y and... Um, but still was this, like, sweet, precocious little girl. Yeah. And she, it was sort of subtle, the way the writers wrote her in, right? They they didn't pigeonhole her as an activist, but she her activism sort of came out in everyday exchanges in a way that it truly does in real life. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like having a, a woke kid. Yeah, you don't people don't really <laughs> at least people that I know don't really walk around, you know, um proclaiming their that they're involved in some sort of activist right. crusade. It just comes out when you talk to them and I think over the years that we've gotten to know Lisa, it's just sort of, whether it's her, you know... Vegetarianism, right? Yeah. You don't win friends with salad, Emily. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a Lisa quote? That's a Homer quote. Oh. You don't win friends with salad. You don't win friends with salad. This, that you can unpack, as a vegan, you can unpack that whole episode. I know. Are you going to marry a carrot? <laughs> oh my God, you're pulling all these, like, great quotes that I'm not picking up at all. This I'm is like excited. my, this was a, a, this is a microclasm of my whole life. Quoting The Simpsons and people looking at me like I have three heads. <laughs> Growing up in Washington, D.C., Yardley Smith was often teased because of her voice. In 1984, she got her first big break when she was cast in the Broadway production of Tom Stoppard's The Real Thing. When she auditioned for The Simpsons in 1987, she initially read for the role of Bart, but the casting director thought her voice was too high, giving her the part of Lisa instead. That's something I can really identify with. The distinctiveness of Yardley's voice means that while other voice actors on The Simpsons voice several characters, Smith is actually banned from doing so because her voice is just too specific. Like many women, Yardley saw her professional pursuits as a means of achieving perfection and personal fulfillment. She hoped that success would quiet the growing chorus of her own internal insecurities, which she once called a bottomless pit of wanting global adoration. I can just get the world to adore me, then I will feel better about myself, and all my insecurities will go away. Everybody will adore me, and that must mean that I'm worthwhile, she told Vanity Fair last month. Yardley's career has been unquestionably successful. She won a Primetime Emmy Award for Outstanding Voiceover Performance in 1992. 
But despite her massive success, Smith didn't always feel fulfilled by her voiceover work. As much as she loves being Lisa Simpson, to Smith, being a voice actor wasn't being a, quote, real actor. It was just acting from the neck up, as she put it. Like a lot of women, Smith struggled with bulimia and insecurity around her looks. In the 90s, she spent more than $40,000 on plastic surgery, which she hoped would help her get more acting work. This really sounds like a difficult time for Smith. She was aging out of playing the daughter roles she had spent so much of her career on, but her youthful voice and looks made mother roles a challenge, too. Growing older helped Smith break out of her cycle of self-doubt. Turning 40 helped her let go of the arbitrary timeline of achieving her ideal of success by a certain age. You know that classic Simpsons episode when Lisa is devastated that her substitute teacher, Mr. Bernstrom, is leaving? At the end of the episode, Mr. Bernstrom is getting on a train. Lisa runs alongside the train to catch up with them to say goodbye. He hands her a note. I'm going to miss you. I'll tell you what. Whenever you feel like you're alone and there's nobody you can rely on, this is all you need to know. Thank you, Mr. Bergstrom. You are Lisa Simpson, the note reads. Yardley told Vanity Fair that she actually never understood this iconic scene until she understood herself. Your identity isn't your work. Your identity isn't who you are professionally. Who you are really comes from what's inside. Yardley says, I went, oh my God, all you need is already inside of you. To actually admit that is such an admission of the fact that I obviously didn't feel and still struggle with the notion that everything I need is inside of me. After this quick break, we'll hear from Yardley about this aha moment and about her work bringing everyone's favorite fictional feminist to life. So Yardley, we're we're so, so happy to have you here today in studio. And we were just talking about how Lisa Simpson really did sort of change the lives of a lot of girls, like a generation of women and girls who could finally see themselves reflected on screen. What is it like to have people tell you that? I mean, I'd like to say at least I, I don't feel completely uh, responsible because I always maintain that I'm 33 and a third percent of the success of Lisa Simpson, the other two-thirds percent coming from the writers and the animators. But I completely get it is really all I can say. She's certainly one of my favorite characters of all time, and I, I would truly say that even if I didn't um, give voice to her. She is so funny and she's so smart and one of my favorite characteristics about her is that is her resilience i mean you know if you know the show you know they put lisa simpson through so much they constantly give her things and then by the end of the episode 22 minutes later she doesn't have them anymore whether it's a pony or friends or um you know some fantastic achievement and so she really has to draw on these inner resources in a way that um, I I struggled with as a kid and so if you know if you're if you're lucky enough to be in a position to set a great example like that through your work then um, I do think that you have a tremendous responsibility to honor that yeah I, one of the things I'm so interested in when it comes to representation is that the data is very clear that if young women and girls can't see themselves reflected on screen, then they almost don't see their own experiences and sort of stop believing in the power of their own their own agency. And, you know, so few characters on screen are girls and women, so few of them. And 
you know, having a character like Lisa, who is flawed, who is struggling, who gets things, and by the end of the episode, those things are taken away, it really can show girls that, you know, we're here, we exist, our stories are important, our lived experiences are important and have value, and that even if you don't often see them reflected on screen, they're still really important. I, I think that's uh, really well said, and, and certainly, as you know, I mean, in the last six or nine months, there's this great, hopefully it's a movement that sustains itself where I wouldn't say women are finding their voices, but our voices are finally being heard. And But you're right, to your point, that there haven't been a lot of female heroes on screen in particular, and certainly not ones that are truly flawed and still survive and thrive even and can make you feel like I'm, can make you feel like I identify with that and that is awesome and not as though you somehow need to be fixed. I think that as women we, we do two things really well. We apologize needlessly for almost everything. Yes. And we take it upon ourselves to try to fix ourselves when perhaps there really isn't anything broken. Which isn't to say that you shouldn't always strive to improve yourself or learn something new or um, stay curious about people and the world. But the notion that you are inherently broken in some way, somehow less than, um, I think it, it's there's generations and generations of terrible, terrible messaging going on. I completely, completely agree. And that's one of the reasons why I feel like people connect with Lisa so much. So often as women and female characters, we're on this binary where you're a good girl or a bad girl or, you know, you're, you're always one or the other. And I think Lisa shows that you can be smart and driven and ambitious, but also jealous and petty and have struggles and f*** up and all of that and still be this authentic, multifaceted person that we all are. I feel like women on screen don't really get the benefit of being multifaceted people. We're either sweet and good or bad and slutty or bad and vengeful. And Lisa shows us that we can be that we that are we exist on a spectrum, that we can be all things. We can exist in multitudes. I completely agree. That's really beautifully said. I have absolutely nothing to add to that fantastic <laughs> analysis of our girl. <laughs> I, I love that you call her our girl. I mean, what's what is your like, do you look up to Lisa? Do you admire her? Absolutely. And and I also have this, I have a very, um, a, a quite, I think, unique relationship to the character and as far as, because she doesn't look like me, um, although I, oddly I do see myself in some of her facial expressions, you know, but obviously she's bright yellow, she has four fingers, she, you know, she has, her hair is, you can't tell her hairline from her complexion, um, and she has this massive overbite, and yet she couldn't be cuter. But I do feel like Lisa Simpson is so well-formed that, and, and has been part of our culture for so long now. We just started recording season 30 um, this week, and that she really exists quite separately from me, that she exists so successfully on her own as her own little being and I think that if and if she didn't I would maintain that you wouldn't have hashtags on Twitter that say Lisa Simpson 2020 suggesting that she should run for president in 2020 like if she was 
just um, a character that you sort of that you didn't attach to. You you would never get something that goes viral in that way. Absolutely, and I think that's a, a, a testament to not only your brilliant work as voice talent, but the writers who give her life. I mean, it's clear that Lisa is someone on the show who I don't want to say she's beat up on the show, but she's someone who kind of beat up. She's yeah, kind of beat up. She's right a little beat up, right? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just you see, they put her through hell. They do. They hold her feet to the fire like like nobody else. I feel, <laughs> and then they expect her to. Um, to recover from that, and of course she always does, but I always think, oh God, if she ever gets past the age of eight, that girl is going to be in some serious therapy. Or maybe she'll teach the therapist, for all we know. Yeah, she can be a therapist herself, for sure. <laughs> yeah. um, and I, I just think that that really, to me, and, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it speaks to the talent of you know, not only the writers, but the, you know, the, amazing, the amazing voice talent that you have on The Simpsons so many of whom are female. I actually didn't know that the first episode of The Simpsons was written by Mimi Pond, a woman. Um, and, you know, it initially appeared on the Tracy Ullman show, which, you know, amazing female powerhouse driven show. So what is the yeah. what is the situation like in terms of gender in the cast and crew of The Simpsons? Is the, the you know, voice talent is certainly full of amazing female talent. But what does the writer's room look like? Uh, the writer's room is mostly male, actually, by a lot, like 95% male. I think we have we have quite a large staff because everybody who writes on The Simpsons, um, they they will, because you've written on The Simpsons and, and, you know, the standard is set very high there, they then go off and write for somebody else and then they realize, oh, crap, we get nothing but studio and network notes and they all come back in some capacity to work on The Simpsons again and... Um, and so, and that reference is that in our writer's room, uh, when James L. Brooks, our executive producer, made the deal with Fox to transfer The Simpsons to a half-hour series, he said, I'll only do it if we get no studio or network notes, which is almost unheard of. But because he's James L. Brooks, you know, Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart and um, Terms of Endearment and so many, like the guy is just, he's got walls and walls of, of trophies uh, from our industry, and um, so he's obviously incredibly well regarded. And at that time, I, I also have heard that 20th Century Fox was like, "Sure, give the guy whatever he wants. The show isn't going to last more than 13 half-hour episodes. So fuck it, who cares?" And then, of course, we hit so big, and we're still on. And so, but that um, you know, bit of fine print on his contract that says no studio or network notes still exists. So um and the other one of the other things he did actually which was cool as a little sidebar was he said he wanted the music for the show to be scored by a live orchestra. So every week a forty piece orchestra scores the Simpsons music. There's nothing canned about it. It's it's pretty remarkable. Um that never happens. Um so but to that point the um we have a, a, most of the writers in that room are men. And the other thing I've heard and have actually recently heard confirmed is that Lisa Simpson represents all of those guys. Uh, she's their alter ego as well. So if you consider that all of these male writers and uh, maybe, although I feel like the female writers, I'm thinking of one in particular, Carolyn Omine, who's been there a really long time. She's such a phenomenal writer, and she's 
an incredible woman and and I always feel like she has such a strong sense of herself. So maybe this theory doesn't apply to her, but what I was going to say is all these men, when they were in school, high school, and then they went to all these Ivy League colleges, and um, I think when you're incredibly academically gifted, as they were, it sets you apart from your peer group. In fact, if you're gifted at anything, whether it's sports, for me it was school drama, um, whatever it is that you're better at than most of your classmates, it will bring you praise and jealousy all at the same time. And certainly as a kid, when you're growing up, all you want to do is belong. And so these writers who were also gifted and some graduating from college when they were 16 kind of thing know every bit what it was, what it's like for Lisa Simpson to be the black sheep of her family and even in her town. And so I think they get to to write out a lot of the angst that they experienced as young people in our little Lisa Simpson. (laughs) She's a vessel for a lot of things, Bridget. I can definitely see how that plays out on the show. But again, I think that is such a fascinating part of the character that it's true. If you grow up being good at something, particularly as a girl, it may be a blessing in your life, whether it's drama or sports or academics, but it also will be something that maybe sets you apart, that makes it hard. And I'm happy that on the show, we see Lisa grappling with that because, you know, it's not always going to be easy for a little smart girl who is precocious or is really into something or very ambitious about something. You might get teased, you might be a loner, you might be ostracized, but on The Simpsons, we see that it's okay. It's okay. Like, she's not... She's, you know, compare her to the character of Martin, who is so smart, never, you know, never lets a chance go by to let people not see that he is smart and talented. And you think like, oh, this is someone who is going to be, you know, bullied his whole life, whatever. Through Lisa, you see that it's okay. It doesn't have to be something that consumes your entire identity, that you're good at something or smart or ambitious, but that you can, it can exist within you, that you can be a normal happy, well-adjusted person, and also be good at saxophone, be good at math, be good at whatever. Yes, I agree. And I I also think one of the things that's so inspiring about Lisa Simpson, that even if those talents, her academic prowess and her being a saxophone prodigy, um, even as those things don't necessarily win her any friends, she never ever gives up on them. Like she, she never. As, there's that one episode called "Summer of Four Foot Two where she does pretend to be one of the cool kids who isn't um, a brainiac. But at the end of the day, Bart outs her. Right? He tells those cool kids when they they go to Flanders's beach house and they have this weekend and she meets these kids and she's like, oh my God, I think they like me. And she's so excited by that. And Bart is so jealous that he then goes to them and says, you know, my sister is actually a super straight A student and she's, you know, nerdy and um, all the things that you guys aren't. And they have, they pause for a moment. And at the end of the episode, they end up liking her just for who she is. And of course, that's the best message of all time. But even as Lisa has a momentary, she of course expresses her rage to Bart, which I always love. And, um, but she, I don't think, my recollection is that she never, apart from that initial idea that if I don't tell them who I am, they'll still like me, she never 
doubles down on thinking, I, ne- I need to figure out how to change myself entirely. She f- tries to, instead she approaches it as though, I need to see if I can hang on to who I am and still have friends who get me and who I, I get something from in return. Yeah. And that, that episode is so poignant because she does kind of come to this realization that she's okay. She doesn't have to change herself to get yeah. friends, to be popular. I see that in another great episode, the episode where she decides she has a crush on the school bully. Uh, um, oh, yeah, I love that one. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, she tries to make him become sort of like her version of... Yes. A successful mate, like putting him in a sweater vest and having him eat fig bars. <laughs> and by the end, she realizes, one, this isn't going to work. This isn't who he is. He's always going to be the guy who wants to take a poop in Principal Skinner's bird bath or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that's okay. Like, she's, it's okay that she is never going to be the kind of girl that he likes and that she still likes herself and that at the end of the episode, they're not in a relationship and that's okay. Right, but she still really likes him. You know, she... I I do always feel as though, since that episode, Lisa and Nelson kind of have a a lasting affection for each other, even if they're not going to be a couple. There's another episode uh, further on after that one where it's an episode about microfinance, and, and Nelson turns out to be really good at fixing bicycles, and Lisa supports his business anonymously and what I love about her is that again I mean she knows Nelson she knows him quite well and she knows they're nothing alike but she is all about supporting that thing that he's good at that she doesn't know anything about but the fact that he's good at it and that it might give him confidence might give him a leg up uh, even in his own standing is meaningful to her and so she's all about it I mean, come on, you can't have a better role model than that. And and on the flip side of all of the sort of all of the things she does that are uh, wise beyond her years, she still has a fantastic sense of humor. She still thinks the itchy and scratchy is the funniest thing she's ever seen. (laughs) And that, I think, is a super important element in creating the character. If you just made her really precocious and this know-it-all, she becomes pretty insufferable. As long as you don't forget that she's always eight and needs to have some childlike characteristics that are very much like an eight-year-old, like her, you know, loving of the itchy and scratchy cartoons, then you create a really uh, successful balance, I think. Yeah, I agree. Something that you had said that just jumped out at me is that, you know, for a show that is notable for sort of showing toxic, dysfunctional, romantic relationships and friendships as well. You know, you've got the Homer who is often choking Bart and Homer who can be sort of like not the best husband to Marge. Lisa kind of presents this this interesting, healthy model for like what healthy relationships can look like where, you know, hey, even if we didn't work out as a romantic couple, I still support you. I still support you. You know, it's interesting. I didn't think about that until you just mentioned it, that her relationships really do illustrate what healthy relationships can look like, even if they don't work out the way that we had planned. I'm so glad you said that, because way back in the day, back in the early 90s, when we first went into a half hour, it was George H.W. Bush who said we need more families like the Waltons and less like the Simpsons. And 
everybody, of course, who was on the show, for one thing, it made our show even more popular because anytime <laughs> you have to be really careful about how you're going to diss something. Um, but what was really um, emblematic about that comment was the Simpsons, despite their dysfunction, really genuinely care about each other. So even if they're not really even if they're not expert at expressing it, even if they're, they don't always do the right thing, and they often don't, their intention is pure. And even if at the end, at the beginning, it seems as though the intention's not even pure, they always come around, as you say, like Lisa Simpson realizing Nelson is never going to be like me, but I still can like Nelson for who he is. And that's, of course, a universal lesson that to appreciate somebody's differences, even if you don't necessarily see eye to eye or you're not going to hang out seven days a week, that's all okay. They can still be a really interesting occasional friend. They can just be, they can hold that point on the circle that you will never hold. So anybody who who says The Simpsons is a bad influence, I think, um, I always feel sort of sad as though you've actually... You've missed the larger point of this family. Yeah, I mean, growing up, not not to make it very too personal, but growing up, we planned family meals around when The Simpsons came on TV. So <laughs> when I was growing up, it came on at seven. So we had family meals around The Simpsons. And, you know, I, I've talked on the show about my family, and my family is great, and I love them very much. But we were the big, loud family that was always involved in something. It was, just, you know, we didn't have that cookie-cutter family that you saw on the Brady Bunch where everything was happy and nobody ever screamed and nobody ever did anything wrong. We had a real family and my parents worked. They were cranky. The kids were, the kids lied. We were f***ed up. We got bad grades. Like all the things that happen in normal families. And I would often feel so alienated watching these perfect families on TV. And I would think, gee, what are we doing wrong? Like what's wrong with our family that doesn't look like that? And The Simpsons was a show that reminded me, hey, families don't always look like the perfect, happy Huxtables. Sometimes it looks like The Simpsons. And sometimes your house is a mess, your parents are cranky, your kids are, you know, they're good kids, but they lie, they get into scrapes, they get into trouble. Sure. And that doesn't mean they don't love each other. And that show was so was such a big part of my understanding of my own family and how families look and behave, you know, writ large. And I think... You know, to your point, certainly back in, if we, we spun off in that half-hour show uh, in January of 1990. Well, well, the first, actually, the first half-hour episode was December 89 because it was the Christmas special where they get Santa's little helper. And um, I think at that time, to your point, there were most of the shows were reflecting a family that was m- much more pristine than what The Simpsons was about to um, reveal. And so, and you either loved it or you hated it. You either wanted to buy into the, we need to be more like the Brady Bunch, or you were willing to go, oh, crap, awesome, look at that, there's a family just like ours. And maybe even a little bit worse, I think we're doing okay, (laughs) you know. Um, So it's great, you know, always to... um, have a mirror held up in a wider sense, I think is always incredibly important and valuable. Like you were saying at the beginning of the interview about girls not seeing a lot of 
um, flawed but still ambitious and uh, successful but n- not outrageously, not, not unrealistically so, not having a lot of role models like that on television. You often hear um, people of color saying, I didn't see anybody like me in movies and television, and hopefully that conversation is changing now. But, you know, as a white woman with blue eyes who grew up in a middle-class family in the United States, I have no idea what that's like. I certainly know, knew what it was like as a girl, not to see that many role models, but but if there were girls on film and television, they were probably white. So at least I had one thing that I could identify with, right? And um, imagine growing up, you know, I can't, obviously. Imagine growing up as somebody who doesn't see anybody who looks like them, sounds like them, acts like them, lives like them, anywhere in entertainment, which is somehow supposed to reflect all of our lives. Yeah, you, you kind of grow up feeling like your own experiences just aren't validated because they're not seen. And, you you, right. you know, the studies have been very clear that it's so important to have your own experiences reflected back at you, to have that agency and that grounding and, and to feel like you are, you know, part of the conversation. Yeah. So I want to switch gears really quickly. Um, earlier this week, there was a really poignant uh, Vanity Fair piece that just came out called Why Lisa Simpson Matters. And if folks haven't read it, they should totally read it. It's very, very poignant. But one of the things I found so great about that piece was you really are very candid about your own struggles with perfection in an industry that often expects women to be you know, the best looking, the most talented, all of that. And that's something that I see Lisa struggle with quite a bit. There's an episode where she gets an eating disorder when she's doing ballet. And I wondered, like, what like what made you want to be so candid about your sort of struggles with trying to, you know, be this perfect, you know, perfect looking person? I think certainly the while not a calculated move to talk about those things, I, for me, it's always a, it was a cautionary tale that there was there was a lot of pain in trying to somehow fix something that I perceived as being broken and it not working. So, you know, the takeaway from, for instance, having um, liposuction or dieting or there was I put a lot of emphasis on my appearance because I wasn't five I'm not still not (laughs) five foot nine um you know 105 pounds soaking wet I'm I'm athletic I'm super strong I am what I am right but certainly as I was growing up and never ever ever cast as the pretty girl and People made fun of my looks when I was growing up and all this stuff, all the things that every girl goes through. But I took it really personally. And so I did these things in hopes that it would make me feel um, better about my appearance, more successful, more acceptable in the wide world. And it didn't work. And that is my only regret in doing those things, that I tried every which way I possibly knew to fill up the inside from the outside. And so whatever your modus operandi is, whether it's this relationship will fix me, this job will fix me, this award will fix me, this plastic surgery will fix me, 
I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue any of those things. Just know why you're pursuing them and don't assume, don't ever assume that doing those things will fill that hole inside of you. It might sort of coat it with a little lining, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to figure out a way to fill it up from the inside, which, and even having said that, it's sort of almost a daily struggle for me. I, I have in no way mastered this, but at least there's some awareness that, okay, okay, all those things I did before, I know it's not going to work the way I want it to. I still want it to, but at least I've learned that it doesn't work. (laughs) So really, if you could say, you know, I I guess it comes down to if I could save one person from doing something for the wrong reason. And again, do it if you want to do it. Then that, that would have, it was worth it to, to bear my soul. I think it was definitely worth it. You could count me among that one. I'm sure there's plenty of women, but I'm definitely one of the one of the one women for whom that will make it worth it. Um, I think as women, we so often feel like we have to measure up to this imagined ideal of what success looks like. For me, I always think if I could just get published in this one outlet or if I could just get this one professional goal or just have this, I would finally feel like I had, quote, made it or I would finally feel successful. And you know, when I, if I ever reach those goals, I, w- I would still feel empty. And I think it's one of those things where you have to come to realize me- making X, meeting XYZ goal isn't actually the end all be all. It's the process. It's the journey. It's how we get there that really kind of can be fulfilling and that it doesn't matter if you get published an X outlet or if you get X award or whatever, if you, if it isn't going to be what actually makes you feel fulfilled. Right. Well, and I would say, I think you should give yourself the credit where credit is due, that of course it matters if you get published in that in that um, publication, whatever that goal is for you. But if you think just because you get published in whatever that thing is, that that's going to be the end of your trying to attain goals, you got another f-ing thing coming. That's what I have re- learned. You know, that even if... If I, when I drove onto the Fox lot and where we record The Simpsons and saw, there's, they have all these billboards at the entrance, of course, right? Advertising shows and films that they um, own and that they're, that are on their channels and that they've produced. And let's say I drove in onto the Fox lot and saw Yardley Smith starring in blah, 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 whatever it was. Um, if I think that they'd be like, wow, that's it. I've made it now. I can retire. I'm good. I'm good to go. That was the, like, that's just not who I am. So if you are a person who is always trying to set the bar higher, then it's a really delicate balance. And I, again, I, I haven't mastered it, but for many, many years at the beginning of my career, I equated my value and my identity with my successes. And of course, success is a matter of perception, and so is failure. So if, you know, at the age, by the age of 25, I hadn't won an Oscar, that felt like a failure to me. Whereas people are like, well, Jesus, Yardley, that's an incredibly lofty goal. I'm like, yeah, well, why wouldn't you set a lofty goal? But the precarious part of that is, if you don't achieve that goal, does that mean that you end up missing all of the great things that you have done along the way, but just because they weren't on your checklist, you don't count? 
And that was the set of rules that I had set for myself. Mm. Would you say that you're someone who would call yourself a perfectionist? Yes, yes. Um, certainly less so now. It's a, been a, a really hard-won battle, but I was tortured by my notions of perfection growing up and well into my 20s, probably even, I'm like, I'm 53 now, so probably into my mid-30s, I would say. Um, so that would, uh, under that same umbrella would be the plastic surgery, would be the um, holding myself to uh, somehow assuming that when I went to an audition and got down to, um, went to network, as we used to say, we don't do it so much anymore, but when you go to the network on a pilot, you that means you've passed all, you've jumped through all the various hoops. This is the last stop. You're going to audition for the network executives, and in that moment, they will decide whether or not you get the job, and that was for television pilots. And so I was really good at it. I was I was a, a strong auditioner. I, I had nerves of steel, which is not to say I was fearless. I I was I really am sort of afraid of everything, but I just have this overabundance of courage, and that carried me through. And so, but it came to the point where I would blame myself for not being able to basically control their minds, right? If I didn't get the job, I would think, well, what did I do wrong? And that was, it, it, what, there wasn't anything else I could do. I hadn't done anything wrong. I had done all of my homework. I was super, super prepared in those situations always. Um, and for whatever reason, they decided they wanted to go with six foot two and blonde, or they decided to make the part in uh, something for a man, or you know what I'm saying? Like there were so many factors beyond my control, but because I wasn't able to control them, somehow that was my fault. And that that's when perfectionism, I think, really becomes a zero-sum game. Again, I think it's everything to have goals and to strive for them, but you have to be nimble along the way. And I think I was certainly never a person who was interested in the journey. I was only interested in the destination. Um, that's how I was brought up, to achieve at a very high standard, and it didn't include necessarily what you had learned along the way. Or if it did, that was an implied success. But because it was never spoken about, it didn't, you know, it didn't mean anything to me. Um, so I've kind of had to arrive at that on my own. And I go back and forth still. I, I, I'm by no means a Zen master in this. <laughs> I mean, seriously, Bridget, check back tomorrow and be like, so Yardley, how's the journey today? I'm like, ah, shit, I'm already part of it. <laughs> But yeah, it's 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 almost like a meta thing because it's it's your it's like a writ large version of you learning or or figuring out again and again that it is the journey, not the destination, right? That you yeah. know, tomorrow you might be in a different place and that's okay because ultimately it isn't about where you're at, it's about how you get there. Absolutely. And I think something that you said earlier, I do my sense of it is is that accepting the journey is harder for women because and and maybe obviously there are men who like dude I never accepted the journey I was all about the goal but I feel as though when when women share their 
share their journey that it can often be perceived as oh oh you haven't made it yet oh oh well that's too bad dear that there's um there's just a different there's a double standard that you that either you won't make it because of course the the phrase glass ceiling means something to all of us and that if you're still on the journey you must not be doing something right and um it's and it's not always imposed i'm not saying that men are holding us down i think we work against ourselves as women um there's a a very different social structure for men and women i think men for instance, obviously are much better at the bromance. Um, and women, I think, if we're successful, we can tend to divide and conquer instead of banding together. Again, I think that narrative is changing, and hopefully permanently, um, as we go forward from where we are now. But when there's a, a movie that's all about women, we call it a chick flick, but when there's a movie all about men, we don't call it a man flick. It's just a it's movie. It's a movie, right? Yeah. Right. So I don't think that we've always been encouraged to band together. And and when women do, it's like, oh, yeah, it's, you know, it's just a bunch of women getting together doing a thing as opposed to a bunch of people getting together doing a thing who all happen to be the same gender. Yeah, I think that's so true. And something that you said that resonated so well with me personally is this idea that for women... It almost seems like we have to have this facade that we have it all together all the time, that we know exactly what we're doing, and that when women kind of women are not given the same leeway as men to show their flaws, their vulnerabilities. Right. And we have to sort of pretend that we have it all together lest we look like complete screw ups, because like there's nothing worse than being a woman who like doesn't have it all together. Men are given the latitude to be these eccentric geniuses who are complete messes, but still get it together and like produce awesome stuff. Women, on the other hand, don't get that leeway. And I'll never forget the first time that a woman that I really professionally admired admitted like one of her biggest, most crucial work mistakes. And I thought, mm. gee, this was someone who I thought was so perfect, never messed up, blah, blah, blah. And she was like, you, you think that about me? I mess up all the time. And it made me realize, oh, I have this idea in my head that if a woman has made it, that means she has never f***ed up. She's never made a mistake. She has always been on her game all the time, 100%. And that's the, 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 the story that we tell ourselves about successful women is just not true. Right. And there was that movement way back in the, I probably started in the 70s, um, where there was this notion that women could have it all that you could be a career woman, you could be a mother, and you could be a wife, and you would do all of those things seamlessly without any stress, without one ball, without any of the balls being dropped and rolling under the sofa. And, of course, the revelation over the last 40 years has been like, oh, wait a minute, that's impossible because there are still only 24 hours in a day, and that that balancing act... Um, I mean, and I don't have any kids, uh, so I don't even know firsthand what that's like, but I, from women that I am friends with who have tried to do that, is like, yeah, it's impossible. There will be this, some, something is going to suffer, and it's usually uh, the self-care, of course. We'll hear more from Yardley after this quick break. 
Let's get back to Yardley. So I want to switch gears again here. Um, in one of the ways that you are very similar to Lisa Simpson is that Lisa, one of the ways that her feminism comes through is that she always feels very empowered to, you know, figure out what's going on in the world around her, whether it's solving the mystery of who shot Mr. Burns or figuring out what this, you know, what this weird angel skeleton thing that was found in her in her community mall, like what that was about. Is it really an angel? Is it something else going on? I love that Lisa is always feels empowered to know more than the adults around her and like completely runs with that. And so you sort of have done that a little bit yourself with Small Town Dicks, your true crime podcast. Oh, nice segue there, Bridget. <laughs> Thank um, you. <laughs> um, well, I will say one thing. One of my other favorite qualities about Lisa Simpson is she has a very strong sense of justice. Lisa has a, an absolutely unshakable moral center as in terms of, and, and not a holier-than-thou kind of morality, but uh, we are all equal and we need to be treated equally. And so, and I love that about her. She's, she's always for the underdog. And I like to think I, I share that with her. And I've always had a love of true crime. And I feel as though, for me, it, there was something really comforting and optimistic about the good guys winning. I, I really, I get, I get a, a visceral fire of rage in my gut when somebody gets away with something bad or something, they've done something wrong and nobody's calling them out on it or they just haven't gotten caught. And it can be anything from uh, somebody who you know, lies to their best friend to somebody who uh, has committed a murder or um, inflicted some terrible crime or harm on somebody else. And so uh, this <laughs> true crime podcast that we've started, that we launched uh, in September 2017, and has had massive success. We're so thrilled. I started it with my best friend, who's another actress named Zibby Allen, and our two friends, these identical twin detectives named Dan and Dave. And Dan and Dave, we, we never say their last names because uh, Dave, Dan is retired, but Dave is still a working detective. And we also wanted, the premise of the show is these big-time crimes are happening in small towns everywhere, just not with the frequency that they happen in, say, Los Angeles, Chicago, Washington, D.C., but the level of depravity and evil is in no way diminished because the population is smaller. And so we were, Zibby and I were fascinated by this, and so we were, we were um, all together having drinks one night at uh, Christmas 2016, and we were like, we should do a podcast. <laughs> and so, like, yeah, and then three months later, we were like, okay, and we all had always loved listening to Dan and Dave's stories about the cases that were breaking in because and they were the ones who had worked the, the cases. We got incredible detail, and we were so fascinated by the actual process of how do you break a case? And so that's sort of how the podcast was born. And we decided we would only have detectives on the show who actually investigated the cases they're talking about. 
and we've been able to stick to that. So now we go around the country interviewing detectives about cases. And we also try to get cases that are lesser known. A couple of them have had uh, national attention, but by and large, um, they aren't the things that you always read about on Wikipedia because for us, it was manyfold. We wanted to highlight really stellar police work, of which there's a lot. And we wanted the criteria for the detective is just tell us about a case that you're proud of. So it doesn't have to be the goriest murder that you ever came across. Uh, Dan, for instance, there's um, an episode in season one where Dan tells a story about breaking the um, this case wide open of a home invasion robbery. And the only clue he had was... Um, uh, uh, two iced tea bottles that were unopened, so no DNA, and an unmarked plastic grocery bag that said, thank you for your business. And through a series of just some good old-fashioned detective work, Dan figured out where the bag came from, who had bought it, uh, where they got on the bus, because he knew that they didn't have a car, um, and on and on and on, and then linked them to several other uh, burglaries. So, and that stuff, like, that's such a win. It's such a win for the good guys, and we love that. And on the flip side, we have some really, really dark cases where um, there's a, a case about uh, child abuse that ended up changing the law in this state and the way they do welfare checks. Um, on children in this state, and that one's really hard to hear, but it, we did get the detective, it was quite some time ago in the 80s, uh, 80s or early 90s, um, we got the detective who worked that case to talk about it, and I just I can't, we can't get enough of it, but we're getting all these five-star reviews, and so we're on iTunes, and we're now we're on Stitcher Premium, too, um, Google Play, anywhere you like to listen to your podcast. And I think that you brought a clip for us to hear. Oh, yes, I did. So we put together this. We just launched season two um, in the middle of February. So before that, we wanted to, we had recorded all our episodes. We hadn't edited them all because we're, we're a super small team, Bridget. We are, <laughs> we have me and Zibi doing the editing, and then we pass it on to our two actual editors who know, know how to work Pro Tools and all that, um, and that's the team. Thank you very much. Um, so we have our own equipment, so we pack it up in um, Pelican cases and go to the small towns. But So we wanted to put together this trailer of clips from Season 2, and it's fantastic. There are a couple of 911 calls in there, um, some sound bites from the, some of the detectives that we talked to for Season 2. I think it's a really great uh, compilation of what you can look forward to. Let's hear a bit now. I just witnessed a man driving a vehicle intoxicated. My daughter saw the child screaming and running and the car chasing after. Really? It almost immediately turns into a pretty significant car chase. We can't let this guy get away. This guy gets away, this little girl's dead. I have never in my 10 years of doing this seen somebody that on first glance looks so dead. I remember he put both hands on my shoulders and he looked me in the eye and he said, Yardley, he repeated my name three times, Yardley, Yardley, Yardley. I wanted to call you last night and tell you I love you and I'll take care of you and don't worry. Oh, 
she was a very religious person, and so she really felt like it was her purpose to save Mark. One woman described her coming to work with marks on her arm. 911, what is your emergency? My wife shot. Who shot her? I don't know. The investigator says, I, I don't know if you need a lawyer. Did you kill your wife? Doesn't answer. Just kind of looks away. And then he says, I, I think I should get a lawyer. Well, that is amazing. I hope that folks check it out. I've listened to a few episodes, and it's really, really compelling stuff. And I got to say, it is a little bit interesting to hear who I think of as Lisa Simpson talking about these very grisly crimes. Do people tell you that? <laughs> we do. We have we have heard that where people are either really kind of tickled by it or slightly unnerved by it. Um, luckily, I actually, Zibby and I, by no means do most of the talking in our podcast. We really are, we're sort of the, we're the audience, obviously, and I think some of the best feedback we get um, is from fans who say, I love this podcast. One of my favorite things is that uh, the ladies ask the question that I would have asked right when I would have asked it. And that's the purpose that we serve, that we're there to draw out the details that these detectives, because they live with these cases, either feel like that's that important or maybe uh, not that interesting and they're wrong about all of that. It's all important and it's all interesting. And so Zibi and I are there as sort of the Greek chorus to go, hey, what about that? And um, it's really been so rewarding. I, I, I don't know that, I don't know that we had any expectations when we started it really. I People were like, well, what did you hope to get out of it? I'm like, I don't know, just some really great stories because I love true crime and I love the good guys to win. Um, and it's just, in many ways, been so much more than that. It's interesting. I've actually found that most of people that get drunk and say, let's start a podcast, it actually <laughs> does end up being kind of cool. So you're <laughs> you're in good company. My theory is, and this obviously everybody won't agree with this, but I think you have to approach everything that you do with a huge measure of passion. Like if you think, okay, I'm going to do this because it's a money-making scheme, other than the fact, and I'm not talking about jobs that you need to take in order to make your mortgage or buy your groceries, like those are jobs. But if you're going to initiate something um, from scratch, and you don't do it because it moves you in some way, then I think that your success will be 100% more difficultly won. Um, I think when I, because I had a shoe company for five years and I, I, and I started this shoe company literally on a whim because my, my motto is sort of screw it, let's do it. And I didn't have a lot of clothes, but I didn't have any beautiful shoes that were comfortable enough to carry me through my day. And I'm like, well, f that. I can be part of this solution. So without knowing anything about designing shoes, but knowing a lot about what I like, I founded a company called Marchevu in 2010. And I made the shoes in Italy. And I would go to Italy twice a year to visit the factories and the tanneries and pick my materials. And I had a, a woman who was, um, a graphic designer, and I would tell her what I wanted, and she would draw the sketches for the specs and give those to the factories. But my point is, if I didn't have my heart in it, if I didn't really think, this is really exciting for me, I'm learning all this stuff, I had never started a company before, there were so many other things that it entailed that I didn't realize 
would be part of the process when I started it, but that I ended up really loving, then it would have felt like a tremendous failure, I think, when at the end of the day, after five years, we still hadn't made a profit. We had made money, but not a profit. And I sort of started to really get the lay of the land of the big market shoe company. It's kind of a racket, which is fine. Um, and I realized, you know what? It takes as much courage to say no to something as it does to say yes to something. And so uh, I closed the company and started a new company, sort of went back to show business, um, which is what how Small Town Dick started. I have a development company with a my partner, uh, Ben Cornwell, and we develop projects in all mediums at their very earliest stages. And again, that's really exciting to me, to be able to be the people who get to say yes first um, is a unique position and something that's really meaningful to me because somebody gave me a chance way back in the day. And now you get to give that chance to others. You get to be the person exactly. that says yes, the decider. Yes. So I can pay you to write a script. I'm not I don't have to ask you to write it on spec, and I don't know what's going to happen with it. Even if nothing happens with it, we both invested something in it. You invested, you know, your blood, sweat, and tears, and I invested money, and together we were able to move the needle in some way. I love that. That's that's so powerful. So this is my last question. Um, so I have to ask, last week Ted Cruz said this about Lisa Simpson. I think the Democrats are the party of Lisa Simpson. And Republicans are happily the party of Homer and Bart and Maggie and Marge. So Yardley, what do you think about that? You know, first of all, I was surprised that the guy he's, Ted Cruz is talking at, to at, at CPAC says before that, um, before Ted Cruz says Lisa Simpson is the party of the Democrats, that Ted Cruz is a huge fan of the show. Because I feel like if he was really a fan of the show, he wouldn't say, he wouldn't include at least Marge and Maggie as being Republicans, because that seems ridiculous to me. At least not Republicans who aren't completely inclusive. They would have to be moderate Republicans. And I don't necessarily consider Ted Cruz a moderate Republican. Um, but what really struck me about that comment when I heard it, because I actually hadn't seen it, and then, of course, you know, my text messages blew up and the Twitter feed blew up like, Yardley, Yardley, what are you going to say about this? And um, so I watched the clip, and I think the thing that was most striking to me is that although he was sort of, he sort of tried to, you know, pass it off as a joke, Ted Cruz said that Lisa Simpson is the party of the Democrats with so much disdain, as though that was a bad thing. And I thought this is absolutely indicative of the way the government is um, not functioning at the moment, that there doesn't seem to be any, um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of reaching across the aisle. And I'm not saying that um, it's just on the Republican side, and certainly the Democrats have uh, dug their heels in, but I do feel that because the Republicans are the party in power across the board, uh, the burden falls more heavily on them to reach across the aisle and say, hey, how can we reach a compromise? Because at the end of the day, government is compromised. I mean, if you think about how difficult it is to get four friends to decide where to eat dinner on any given night, you get like 10 different suggestions, right? You think you're going to get, what is it, at, you know, between the house 
and the Senate, 500 people to agree on one thing. That's not ever going to happen, people. Everybody's going to have to give something up. So um, I, I was quite disappointed, but of course... I had to answer, and I also had to be, and people, what I, I did tweet Ted Cruz back, although he didn't tweet it, he said it, but I, I crafted a tweet um, saying, hey, Ted Cruz, you say that Lisa Simpson is the party of the Democrats like it's a bad thing, but I'm sure what you mean is, even though she sits across the aisle from me, I look forward to working with her on gun reform um, LGBTQI equality and saving the planet. Smiley face. <laughs> that's so perfect. Also, that's a classic Lisa Simpson response. Like that's exactly exactly what she would have tweeted. And I think you know, in this moment, we actually do have young, precocious, smart, badass young people leading the charge on this issue. And so, I think Lisa Simpson is kind of this. This can be thought of as this sort of torch leading the way of young people who are, you know, being the voices of reason in this debate. It's so exciting. It's And clearly the only thing that has gotten these mostly white middle-aged men to sit up and take notice, because God knows they're, they're not listening to anybody else, including each other, by the way. So um, hats off to those uh, survivors of the Parkland massacre, and what a tragedy that it has taken the events that transpired to affect that change. I mean, really, it's going to take that. I find it. That, I mean, you, if you if you think about it for half a second, you can really get into how discouraging that is. But I think it's probably better to take the optimistic view and and cheer them on and join them in their fight. That's exactly what Lisa would do. That's what we're doing here on Stuff Mom Never Told You. Um, Yardley, I I can't thank you enough for this. Uh, just in terms of, you know, here at Stuff Mom Never Told You, we're trying to be all about radical transparency. So for our listeners out there that are thinking, oh, Bridget sounds a bit strange today. One, it's because I'm talking to one of my literal heroes. Uh, two, it's because little uh, behind-the-scenes info we had done an entire interview earlier this week that was unfortunately lost in the sauce. And Yardley was nice enough to talk to us again. And I honestly could not be more thrilled. I mean, I, I grew up watching The Simpsons, idolizing Lisa Simpson, finally feeling like I saw myself in a small way reflected on screen. And you were such a big part of that for me. And, and honestly, I'm, I'm so sure that you were such a big part of that for a generation of young women and girls. And so... From the bottom of my heart, I thank you for talking to me today. I thank you for all of your amazing work, really shaping our culture, I would say. Oh, Bridget, that's such a tall order. What, a, what an enormous compliment. And really, such a privilege always to hear that my work in some way has inspired and or comforted um, anyone, anywhere. And so to... To hear that firsthand from you means the world to me. I really appreciate it. Well, Sminty listeners, if you can't tell, that was pretty much the coolest thing that has ever happened to me. And I need to sign off so I can cry tears of joy. (laughs) Not really, but maybe a little. Uh, I want to know, what did you think of what Yardley had to say? Can you identify with her quest for perfection? 
Was Lisa Simpson someone that you looked up to growing up? Was your family more Simpsons than it was Huxtables or Brady Bunch? We want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Ever Told You. Find us on Twitter at Mom Stuff Podcast. And as always, I love getting your emails at momstuff at howstuffworks.com. 